And welcome to the City of the Great King podcast with your host, Tyler Swatsky. That's me. Hello. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday for me. I don't know what day it will be when you listen to this. Happy Tuesday. Episode 13. 13 of these bad boys now. That's right. Thank the Lord. I'm not even going to make a comment about weights and lifting weights. You know, no. What do, you, what do you think this is? A workout podcast? Is this a weightlifting podcast? I could make it one, but I won't. Nope. No comment about that. <laughs> Welcome to episode 13. We are on the fourth out of a four-session series called The Marriage Special. We covered ground on the 10 principles to know before you get married, so things to to know before marriage and then enduring a difficult marriage was number two. Number three was divorce. That was last week. And today is the final session of the series and it is remarriage. Now, much of the ground here under the topic of remarriage is covered under the same principles as uh, your first marriage and divorce. So the principles that were already laid in marriage and under divorce apply here onto this onto this topic as well. So there's this should be a shorter one, but oh, Lord knows that I somehow can't do anything under 30 minutes. So we'll see. I want to start with some some harder things and then we'll explain and end on a hopeful note. First of all, the vast majority of remarriages are sinful. Okay, I'm going to put that card on the table now. The vast majority of remarriages are sinful. Now, can you think right now why that is true? Why is it that the vast majority of remarriages are sinful? The answer is actually relatively simple. And it is because the vast majority of divorces are sinful. So the vast majority of remarriages are sinful because the vast majority of divorces are unbiblical. These are very connected topics. And as we examined last week, there are specific grounds for divorce, biblically. Only There are specific grounds, and they were adultery, the basically the translated word for porneia, which covers some pretty serious sexual sin. So adultery... And the other is abandonment and desertion by an unbeliever. So those are your two grounds. And remarriage is not simply permitted just whenever. If your divorce is because, yeah, you know, we just weren't happy together anymore. Or my, my partner isn't doing what I want him to do. Sorry, that doesn't cut it. If there are unbiblical grounds for divorce, then you don't have grounds for remarriage. So let's get that card down already. And I also want to get another caveat out of the way, and that is there is disagreement within Protestant circles, evangelical, reformed, faithful Christians. There is a disagreement uh, over, over this topic. Some hold to what's called the permanence view of marriage, which is that there is absolutely no such thing as remarriage ever. And even divorce, it's it's always sinful to divorce. And if you are in a situation where you're in a divorce, you're never allowed to remarry no matter what. So that is a position that is taken in the church. Although I want to say that 
the reality of there being disagreement on this taints the debate. It does. So there are faithful Christians, faithful Bible teachers, who take this permanence view, and one of its biggest voices is John Piper. Now, John Piper has a big voice in this discussion, but he represents a tiny minority position. So when we grant that there are different views on this topic, it is as though the positions are equal. But the permanence position, which Piper is probably the most well-recognized name of, he he's the only one, really, that people often point to who's written on this, who's very passionate about his view, and even his own church does not take did not take that view. He pastored in that church even though um, they disagreed with him on this. So that's, that's just interesting. So he represents a tiny minority position. Meanwhile, men like John MacArthur, John Murray, Charles Hodge, nearly all Protestants going back to the first reformers affirm the Bible gives two grounds for divorce. And as I will argue, if there are proper grounds for divorce, there is freedom to remarry. So it's like I said before, most remarriages are sinful because most divorces are sinful. However, um, you can't. You are permitted to remarry when there are biblical permissions to divorce. And that is the majority position. So even though there are, like I'm not casting anybody out of the kingdom for not taking the position that I'm advocating for, um, just the, the fact that there are people who disagree makes it seem like these are equal positions when they're really not. Like, when you compare the two cases, it's pretty cut and dry. It's it's kind of a landslide. So let's get into the question of what is remarriage. And that's probably a pretty easy question because if a marriage is a lawful vow between before God, between two inferiors that they are going to hold to a marriage covenantal vow, then a remarriage is simply another making of a new covenantal vow of marriage before God and witnesses. It's like enter, re-enter. You entered, the re-enter is just entering again. So remarriage is just a new covenantal vow of marriage before God and witnesses. The definition is the exact same as the first time, the first marriage, just it's happening again. So the crucial question in this is why are they in that situation? Why are they getting remarried? The, um, the complicated part about this is that it is a case-by-case -case basis. You can't make a general one-size-fits-all for all cases of divorce and remarriage. It's simply impossible. The Bible gives two pretty clear grounds, and people are going to try to find ways, if they're professing Christians, to fit themselves in those categories. And yet oftentimes, as the Westminster Confession we looked at last week, they'll be apt to study arguments because of their corruption, to unduly put together what God joined together, or unduly put apart what God joined together. And so the crucial question is why? Did they work through it with their elders? Did the church get involved and help mediate? Did they seek reconciliation? Because we need to grant right away that the first order of action when there is a separation there's problems in the marriage, is to reconcile, is to make it work. That is God's design. That is what is best for children. Divorce is horrible on children. Uh, to say nothing of the innocent spouse, too. 
even the guilty spouse is going to hurt them too. Even if they think they're running away from a bad situation, oftentimes there's a whole lot of pain that they didn't anticipate. So it's very crucial to know why somebody is getting remarried. I wish it was there was a it was so easy that this shoe fit on every single person who got married, but or got remarried. But it just isn't. We have to try these on a case by case basis. And I want to give a couple other historical and biblical considerations about this. We don't usually think about this, but um, Gordon Wenham, he's a very respected Old, Old Testament theologian and scholar. He one time said that all Jews in the first century, that is the time of Christ in the early church, all Jews in the first century permitted divorce in certain cases, and a Jewish divorce always entailed the right to remarry. Okay, so if there was going to be a permit... A permitted divorce in the first century in Jesus's day, it always entailed the right to remarry. Now, how do they get to that? Well, this is where we got to get a historical perspective in mind. Think of the seventh commandment out of the Ten Commandments. If you know the Ten Commandments, the seventh one is thou shalt not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. And adultery, of course, is sexual activity with someone who is not your spouse. And so if you are sexual, if you are breaking your covenant, if you're breaking your vow sexually that you make to your, before God, to your spouse, and you commit those acts with somebody else, you have violated the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. What do you think the penalty was in the Old Testament for adultery? It's death. If you were proven, there was court back then, and you had to prove your case, if it was proven that you committed adultery, the penalty was death. And so we all naturally recognize, and the Bible's very clear, that if a spouse dies, nearly every single Christian grants that the widow is able to remarry, that they are permitted to. Even those who take this permanence view typically can grant something along those lines, although there's disagreement amongst them, but it was death if they committed adultery. And so it was obvious, if there were grounds for divorce, it was almost, it was usually had something to do with adultery, if there were actual biblical grounds. The guilty party was put to death, therefore making you a widow. Therefore, every time you were permitted to remarry, it was just basic understanding. If you were permitted to divorce, you were permitted to remarry. That was just the way that it, that it was. We don't do that today. We don't put people to death for adultery. And... This is going to inform why the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 24, says what it says. I said that we were going to look at it today, and we are in about two minutes. One more consideration to keep in mind is that, biblically, there is no such thing as legal separation. It's just not there. Um, there is some talk. The closest thing that you can get to is in 1 Corinthians, where it talks about if a wife leaves a husband, uh, she should remain single. She, she cannot remarry if she just leaves her husband. And it doesn't give much information, but it doesn't indicate that there is biblical grounds. It's not very clear, but essentially, if they're just leaving, you're not free to remarry. And But there's no recognition of this like legal separation that we have. So today, especially in the West and in most of the world, you are legally separated for quite a long time before you become legally divorced. 
That's not really the biblical picture. When the covenant of marriage is broken with a covenant-breaking act, that was the end of the marriage. You didn't wait a year in separation, wait two years. That just was not how things went. So the, the concern is whether a spouse commits a covenant-breaking act. That's what gives grounds for divorce to the innocent spouse, though it doesn't require it. Like I said, reconciliation is the first order. But yet, we cannot control everything that happens. It doesn't always go the way that we want. And so, um, what we do with this whole separation period, that's, that's not biblical. If there's a covenant-breaking act, there's grounds for divorce. There's no need to wait this year, two years, whatever it is. And now I'm going to reread Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 24. Paragraph 5 and 6. I'll just go through it quickly because there's only one line I, I really want to focus on. Here it is. Adultery or fornication committed after a contract being detected before marriage giveth just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve that contract. In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce. Listen here. And after the divorce, to marry another as if the offending party were dead. We'll come back to that. Paragraph 6. Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments, unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. So those are your two grounds, adultery, willful desertion. And in those cases, back to paragraph 5, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce. Again, there's no... The filing of the paperwork is not what is making a divorce happen. The divorce is initiated when a covenant-breaking act occurs. So that's the adultery and that's the abandonment and refusal to reconcile. And so when that happens, the innocent party of committing one of these acts can sue out a divorce. And after the divorce, to marry another as if the offending party were dead. So now let's take the next part. After the divorce, to marry another. There is never a time in the Westminster Confession of Faith and in the understanding of nearly all Reformed, all Protestant circles since the Reformation, the first reformers, if you were right to divorce, you are right and free to remarry. That's the position. There's never a time where it's okay to get divorced, but you're not allowed to remarry. And then it says, as if the offending party were dead. You know how, again, connecting to what I said before, if you were a widow and your spouse, your spouse was dead and you're a widow, the Bible's pretty clear that widows are free to free to remarry. Even right here in 1 Corinthians 7, I'll read, the Apostle Paul is talking to widows, and he says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to remain single as I am, which Paul was. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. It is better to marry than to burn with passion. So that's the unmarried and widows. We all grant that. It's because the, the first spouse is dead. Well, and if they weren't dead just by natural causes, they were dead by adultery, the penalty for adultery. They, they were put to death. And so we're not killing adulterers. So we are, the Westminster Confession recognizes the principle that matters here. 
The one who has grounds for divorce, the innocent party, is free to marry another because it's as though that first spouse is dead. In the eyes of the Lord, you are essentially widowed and free to remarry. A key verse in that understanding is 1 Corinthians 7.15. I've read it before. Here it says this, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So that is the key verse in this, and there's other verses, of course, but that's the key one. If an un... Again, this is dealing with the separation part. The adultery part is pretty clear. And Paul is throwing in the other grounds here, the only other grounds. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. So the innocent party, the one who is the believer, who isn't looking for this divorce, is still wants to fulfill their side of the vows of marriage, they are not to try to force the unbelieving partner who wants to divorce to stay with them. It's let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Or in other translations, other understandings in this, it basically is saying you are free. You are free. And that is the interpretation that the Westminster Confession took. You're liberated. Charles Hodge said this uh, regarding this whole thing. If the unbeliever broke up the marriage, the Christian partner was thereby liberated from the contract. This is the interpretation that Protestants have almost universally given to this verse. It is a passage of great importance because it is the foundation of the Protestant doctrine that willful desertion is a legitimate ground of divorce. Charles Hodge. So, this goes back to my main point. Most remarriages are sinful. However, you are permitted to remarry, and it is not sinful to remarry, if you have proper grounds for divorce. You're free to. You're not enslaved. Another helpful passage is 1 Timothy 5. This is just going to reiterate something that I already said. But talking to a widow, uh, talking to young widows in particular, it's once again Paul, and he says in verse 14 of chapter 5, 1 Timothy, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, and manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So in the cases where you are widowed, and you are widowed either because the first partner died, or the first partner committed a covenant-breaking act, and you are free to proceed as though they are dead, so they're basically dead, you have been abandoned, or they've committed adultery, the church has recognized that your divorce had had legitimate grounds, Paul is saying, marry, have more children, manage the household. It's, it's talking to women, but there's freedom for men here too, saying, you're free to marry, have more kids. And, and that that is a good thing, to give no, the adversary no occasion for slander. It's biblical grounds right there. He would have them do it. Now, some people will choose to remain single after divorce, and that is their right. However, Paul, as an apostle, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit in writing scripture, knows that marriage is a tremendous gift. And if for a lot of people who do not remarry or, or, or are not married even in the first place, there's a host of challenges with singleness that you're putting a huge burden on yourself that if you are free to remarry, 
You probably should. Most people should. And it might take you some time to heal and to recover, and you should definitely not jump into it right away. Work with your church, work with your elders on it, but you're free to, and probably should eventually. Um, G.A. Adams also had something to say. He was a great Christian. He is a great Christian. He's big in the counselor counseling field. He said, even though all divorces are the result of sin, not all divorces are sinful. That again goes to show the category of innocent. You can be the innocent category even if you're not a perfect person. None of us are, and yet you can be declaratively made the innocent party in the matter. And John MacArthur said, simply stated, when divorce is permitted, remarriage is permitted. Where divorce is forbidden, remarriage is forbidden. So it's pretty clear. That's why I said the principles of the other episodes really overlap into this one. Those divorced on biblical grounds may remarry. You have that freedom. Those divorced without biblical grounds should not remarry. That is one of the tough parts. And it's only tough because people have to live with the choices that they've made. And then they victimize themselves and act as though God's being unfair to not permit them to remarry. But again, reconciliation is the first order. And a quick word to those who may be divorced and didn't have grounds, and you're now convicted about it, you should, first of all, again, seek reconciliation with your first spouse. However, oftentimes it's not going to be possible. Um, if they do not reconcile with you, your only recourse is to rely on strength from God. That's all there is to it. If you sinfully left your marriage, committed adultery, you are to rely on strength from God. However, there is even some hope for you. For, for you as well. Besides just the fact that the Lord can strengthen you to deal with the fallout of your decisions. From my study on this, the historic understanding is that as long as your spouse is still alive, even if you're divorced, if your first spouse is still alive and not married to anyone else, you must remain single. But if they die or if they remarry, this is where, admittedly, there's some gray area here. Uh, but many have said... If you are the guilty party and you left a marriage, but your first spouse is now either dead or they've remarried, then you may remarry, even if you are the guilty party, but even then only in the Lord. So this is in cases where you have repented, you recognize your guilt before God, uh, you, you've had to have been open about this with your church, your elders, and they're working with you on this, you've probably even repented to your first spouse, even if they're already remarried. In those cases, there's been a lot of situations where if you are a genuine believer and you're genuinely repentant and there is no way to reconcile with the first spouse, you may remarry, even if you're the guilty party. That There is some more discussion to be had about that, but we'll leave it at that for now. Another note regarding remarriage. Sometimes people wonder, well, I didn't divorce properly, or I know people, some people in my family didn't divorce with biblical grounds, and I know all about that. That's all over my family, too. Uh, now they're remarried. Are those remarriages legitimate? Or would it be better if they were to divorce, to split up, because they, they came together sinfully? And 
the truth is that remarriage is a legitimate marriage, even if they came together sinfully. So even if a guilty party split off and divorced from their first partner, and they are they married again, and say they did it completely sinfully, they didn't go through the church at all, there was no repentance, and they just remarried somebody else, that is still a legitimate marriage, if they have made that vow, because God is the holder of marriage. You're not vowing to the heir, you're still vowing to God. Even unbelievers are making this vow to God. They may not recognize that they're vowing to God, but that's why the judgment of God rests upon people who break his law, whether they know him or not. This is God's world. Even if you remarried sinfully, it is still a legitimate marriage, and no good Christian teaching or, or Bible verse can be used to show that you must then tear that marriage apart. If you're remarried sinfully, stay in that marriage, but make it, as far as it depends on you, a biblical marriage. And that may be hard if you now are married to an unbeliever, but being married to an unbeliever does not give you grounds for divorce. You're to stay with them as long as they consent to stay with you. So remarriages are legitimate. And I'm going to end on a... Ah, before I get to the ending, I want to do one more quote. And this is a quote from... It's kind of a combination. Jim Neuheiser and... John Frame, both respected theologians. And they're answering a question of what constitutes abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. And I'm just going to read a little bit of this page here. When an unbelieving spouse permanently leaves the home or forces a believer to depart and then files for divorce, the believer is not to fight against the divorce, but rather is freed from the marriage obligation. Quote, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. <clears throat> Excuse me. But God has called us to peace. 1 Corinthians 7.15 There are also situations in which the unbeliever physically separates from the believing spouse, making it clear that he or she is done with the marriage, but does not choose to go to the, tr go to the trouble of filing for divorce, perhaps to avoid financial obligations. In this case, the believer would be free to file for divorce to formalize what the unbeliever has initiated. I'll stop there. So this goes back to my question before about how filing with the state is not making the divorce happen. The divorce already happened when the covenant-breaking act occurred. And so sometimes the guilty party isn't going to be the one who files for divorce, files the paperwork anyway with the state. And in those cases, when they just are not filing for it, and you've gone through this with your church, and, and, and it's clear what's going on, the innocent party is free to file, to formalize what the unbeliever has initiated. John Frame says this, An unbelieving man may leave his believing wife and go to live with another woman without filing divorce papers. Where does that leave the innocent believing spouse? She may accept the situation of a broken marriage, as Paul says. Thus, she may regard herself as free from the original marriage obligation, but in order to secure recognition of that freedom, she may need herself to file divorce papers with the state. So, that's to, tr that's to ease in those situations where they are clearly the innocent spouse, but the other partner is just not filing it with the state or with the country. Like, are they then supposed to just sit around and wait the other person could be moved on to somebody completely different or 
or whatever it is, are they just supposed to wait? No. In those cases, they are free to, to file, to formalize what the unbeliever already did, already initiated. Now, I talk a lot about the innocent and the guilty party because this is a case-by-case -case thing. In some cases, the husband is the innocent party, and in some cases, the wife is the innocent party. In some cases, they're both guilty parties. And I can't possibly get into every single nuance. Like, what if they both committed adultery on each other? Uh, things like that. I can't get into every single case, but we have to judge these on a case-by-case -case basis. And remarriage, if you are an innocent party in the matter, remarriage is a hope and a blessing. It really is. If you had... The Lord gives you the opportunity to experience the blessing of marriage again, to bear more children, as it says in 1 Timothy 5 to experience the joy of a Christian marriage, to raise children in the Lord, covenant children. This is a blessing and a hope. It's like I said last week, why is divorce even permitted in the first place? It's because of hardness of heart, as Christ said. In the beginning it was not so, but because of your hardness of heart, God permitted it. And so because of sin, divorce happens, but divorce is not just punishment to the person who's making the divorce happen. It, I had said it was mercy to the innocent spouse that they can be out of that situation. And likewise, as I've been trying to say, if there's ever permission to divorce, there was permission to remarry. And remarriages are such a hope and a blessing for the innocent spouse. It is mercy that they are allowed to do this. However, I want to be very careful that and anybody who really advocates for this position, the historic Protestant position, um, eventually has to warn that even though you have this freedom and this freedom exists, that it's there as a merciful guard for innocent spouses in this in these matters. It is not a tool that we want to use liberally, and it is not something we want to invoke over just about any case. Because once you start opening up... Um, grounds for divorce and you start interpreting it as abandonment for various different things you can open a pandora's box and all of a sudden you're allowing divorce and remarriage for just about every issue as long as you can somehow twist it to be under the conditions of an unbelieving spouse refusing to live with a believing spouse or calling something adultery where it isn't the high the high crime of adultery it yes they are committing a version of it we are guilty actually of all of the law we we break all of the law so that's why i tried to caution that just because somebody sins with with a lustful look that doesn't give you grounds for divorce you have certainly uh sinned lust with the sin of lust before too so it's a high high standard to achieve biblical grounds for divorce but we are in a time of toleration of any kind of divorce. And because we tolerate that, we tolerate any kind of remarriage. These things go hand in hand. And so it's we're in a pretty sad state when it comes to divorce and remarriage in our culture. And yet the Bible, while it, like I said, the shoe doesn't fit in every single situation, we have to take it case by case. The principles here guard marriage and provide judgment to guilty spouses to those who don't take their vows seriously and break their vows and it provides hope 
and blessing for the innocent spouse. Now, oftentimes, even though you're the innocent spouse, you have a lot to work on. And there's a lot of growth that you must that you must go through, and there's a lot to learn. And that's another reason why you don't just jump into a remarriage. You have a lot to learn at the end of a marriage. And when you're going through divorce, it's not wise to jump into something right away. And yet nobody can put a hard and fast rule. It has to be this amount of time. Like, this is why it's extremely important that you work with your church, you work with your elders, you work with your mentors. You should have spiritual accountability. Every Christian is supposed to have spiritual accountability, and that usually comes in the form of your elders, but well, it does come in that form, but it can also come from godly friends, mentors, people you look up to, people that you can be open with. So if you are in a position of being divorced and not yet remarried and you don't know when, you don't know... Talk to the people who you trust, who know you, who can give you free input as to if they think that you are ready. Um, and that can be a helpful guide for you. But marriage is really, it's God's idea. And as God's idea, marriage by definition is a blessing. It is a blessed institution that God holds. He gives us this gift, this beautiful gift that can be abused. And oftentimes it won't be seen as a gift. It won't be seen as a blessing, especially when you're married over long periods of time and day by day. It can just be repetitive and even it can be boring and monotonous at times. It is ultimately something that you grow that it's like a small tree that grows into a big, lush, beautiful tree. And so marriage is a really, is a blessing. And if you are an innocent party in the matter of a divorce, thank the Lord, thank God that remarriage is a possibility. However, do not do this alone. You are not your own spiritual authority. Be open to other believers to help you through your own situation. So I'll end by quoting this last little bit of the Westminster Confession again. I've already read it, but at the end of paragraph 6 of chapter 24, if there is grounds for divorce and you're able to marry another as though the offending party were dead, after all of this, when you discover this, a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. Seek godly counsel. We need it. It is good for us. God commands it even of us. And yet, even though it is a command, we see that it is good and a blessing. Well, that is the marriage special. I am thankful to everybody who has listened. It has been... Uh, this, the podcast has grown through this series. These are the most listened to episodes yet. So thank you for listening. I encourage you to share it with people. Uh, there is a Patreon. There's an ability to support the podcast. If you are benefiting from this, if you're growing at all, if you're thankful for this, I would appreciate it if you gave a $5 donation through Patreon. Please prayerfully consider that. Thank you for listening. God bless. Go in the nations. Bye-bye. Thank you.